You may be seated. Good morning. Give you greetings from my wife, Lindy, Olivia, Lucy, and we've got my brother and sister-in-law and their baby, James and Esther, are here. Say hello. Hello. We're so, we're so thrilled to be with you guys here this morning to uh, bear witness to what many of you already know. We had an inside view to what it's like to grow up in a house of, of pastors. And I, there's kind of like a sort of a committee of folks that the PKs and we always tend to find each other no matter where we're at in a room whether that's at a church conference or at school or wherever it is you can kind of just sniff it out sometimes it's one of those things and we always tend to find each other and I'll tell you what it's interesting hearing the stories of folks that have grown up in pastor's homes and sometimes to be honest they're not always fantastic Um, a lot of times I hear stories of Perhaps parents that put ministry before family, or parents who exerted too much pressure on kids, or whatever it is, just what it's like to grow up in that view. And I can tell you, every time that we talk with other PKs and other people, our story is nothing but one of gratitude, celebration, thankfulness, that you guys had pastors that modeled that. Uh, But you need to know that what you see up here was also modeled in the home, which which is more important than whatever you see, whatever you see. Because what you see here is an outflow of what happens uh, in a home. And the first call for any of us, no matter what your vocation is, is actually with your immediacy of your family, what God has stewarded you. So I just want to say thank you to my mom and dad for stewarding us well, for parenting us well, and for giving us a picture of what God is like and for giving us a picture of what it means to live a life of adventure and risk and to follow and hear God's voice. So thank you guys. We love you guys. And, and Lindy, and I have, Lindy and I have been on that adventure a little bit in Southern California for 17 years. It's still weird to think that Southern California has kind of become home, but this place is home. Every time we come here is, is home. Uh, but we're now at a church in Santa Monica, which is great. We just transitioned from Orange County to L.A. County. And there's a phrase down there. It's called the Orange Curtain. And let me tell you, it's the real deal. You know it. If you've driven in L.A., you know when you're on the 5 or the 405, as soon as you cross county lines, it's, it's a whole other deal. But we're enjoying life in L.A., getting, getting used to everything there. And just a small snapshot of what it's amazing to be a part of, of a church there that's kind of got roots and movements to a great church in London. And we, we meet in this property in Santa Monica uh, that we inherited from a church. It's a $40 million piece of property that they said is yours for $1, which is pretty insane, the story that we've been in there. Um, it's also, if you watch Father of the Bride, has anybody seen Father of the Bride? It's the Father of the Bride church where the wedding, wedding was. So I made the mistake of watching that with our eight-year-old Olivia just to show her where it was, and I didn't make it through. The tears were too strong, and we, we, turned, we turned that thing off right away. <laughs> How about the slideshow? Oh, my goodness. Wow. So we talk about service and, and everything else, but fashion, man, fashion is, is a real deal. I'll never forget with my mom, like so many times that it still happens to this day. You'll be walking out in public and she'll get at least five affirmations on her hair or her dress or, or something else. And the styles may have changed. Man, the picture is amazing. Dominion Duck, Mr. Not, not So Bright. Just so many great memories that we have here in this church of people that have been here. And sometimes the, the faces that change, the fashion that changes. But one thing that has remained is the power of the mustache. That thing is <laughs> legit. <laughs> it's the real deal. 
Samson had his hair. My dad has his mustache. <laughs> and uh, I remember him shaving it one time. And we were like, no, that, that doesn't work. <laughs> the hair may have changed a little bit. I like he's kind of reverted. I mean, during the, the 90s and the 80s, we had a little bit of the TBN thing with, with the flowing back here. And, and he's, he's gone back to the, the, the flip over, which I think suits him quite well. It's fantastic. <laughs> Uh, before we kind of dive in here, and my brother James is going to give me one of these, but it's time to wrap it up. He does that pretty good. Uh, I just want to read just real quick Psalms, Psalms 22. Many of us, we know Psalms 23. We could probably recite it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not. And it's one of the most famous Psalms. It's one of the most famous passages all within Scripture. But there's a very, I actually think, what was to say more powerful, uh, impactful passage in Psalms 22. If you just go to the left of Psalms 23, you have the Psalm of David. And if you read it, we're not going to read the whole thing uh, today, but it's actually a psalm that was written some 1,200 years before Jesus went to the cross. And as Jesus is on the cross, he begins reciting this psalm. He talks about his flesh being torn. He talks about water being poured out. He talks about his, the roof of his mouth sticking to the top of the tongue's roof sticking to the top of his mouth because, because he thirsts. He's reciting, and even some scholars think that he's actually singing on the cross this psalm that was written for him some 1,200 years prior before he went to the cross. And I was just struck by the end of it, and I think it's really fitting for what we're celebrating today. As we get to Psalms 22, it says in verse 29, this is the NLT. It says, Let the rich of the earth feast and worship. Bow before him, all who are mortal, all whose lives will end in dust. And this is the powerful part. Our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything that he's done. At the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel, the message of what God has done in this place, as we saw the pictures, I heard somebody say as we saw the kids that that's what it's all about. And that is what it's all about. That the message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is one that's told over a thousand generations, that's passed down to generation after generation, that that is our legacy, that we all have a part to play in that. And that Jesus, moments before he would breathe his last breath, believed that so much to his inward core that he would take time and to recite this, that what is happening today is not just reserved for second century Palestine. It's not just a date in history but it's a story, it's a legacy, it's a movement that will go on and on and on. And the way that he chooses for that to have momentum and to go on and on is through us, his people. That the story of his faithfulness would be told through generation after generation. And you're a part of that. This church is a legacy of that. 35 years, are you kidding me? Do you know what the national average is on the stay of a pastor in churches in America? 3.7 years. <laughs> Before people start to figure out who you are. <laughs> before, you, before you run out of messages. <laughs> Do you know what the, the, the divorce rate was at, at least Orange County? 72%. And whether that's your story or whatever, we're not here to say, say God restores and redeems and he does, he does whatever he wants to do. He, he, use, he uses us. But the fact that we're celebrating 35, of, 35 years of ministry and 40 years of marriage... That is about as uncommon as it gets. And that wouldn't have happened without you guys. I think of Pastor Tom and Pastor 
years. You guys have been here from the beginning. And because of time, I wanted to pick up a guitar and become a worship pastor because of what, what, he, what he did. Pastor Nancy, because of the way that she shared the gospel with joy and enthusiasm with me, made me like, man, what else can I? What, you talk about being in ministry in 17 years. Part of that's because of default, because I don't even know what else I'd do. Because <laughs> we're fostered in an environment like that. These uncommon feats. Our culture likes to celebrate uncommon feats. Pretty uncommon that the Warriors have won two championships in the last... That, that's something right there. I was thinking about some other uncommon feats in history. And just want to read a few of these things. Because our culture likes to celebrate uncommon feats. And that's what we're celebrating today because we serve an uncommon God. A God that's unmatched. Uh, there's a story of uh, Felix Baumengardner. Do you guys remember this guy, the Red Bull sponsor guy? I think we got pictures of him. Uh, he was a guy that he actually dove off of. Uh, I, think we, I think we may have pictures. The first one there of this guy named Felix. There he is. He, you guys may remember this back in 2002. He set the world record by becoming the first to break the sound barrier without vehicle power. When he skydove 24 miles reaching an estimate of 843 miles per hour. Totally uncommon. Amazing. I like this guy. I relate to this guy. Uh, Kevin Fast from Canada. He pulled a CC-17 Globemaster III, which is a large military transport aircraft weighing 416,299 pounds. He pulled it 28 feet on September 7th, 2009. I don't know why I relate to that guy. Could that... <laughs> I have a hard time just pulling a stroller full of groceries. Yeah. <laughs> or this guy. Uh, this is uh, Roy Cleveland. Roy Cleveland was an American park, park ranger who was hit by lightning seven different occasions, seven different times. Uncommon feats. I mean, he had nothing to do with it other than just stand and get struck by lightning. But he was, hit, he, he was hit by lightning seven times between 1942 and 1977, and he survived them all. He's uh, been known as the human lightning rod, and he is recognized by Guinness World Records as a person struck by lightning more times than any other human being. That's crazy. Uh, Jonathan, Jonathan Evans is known as a professional head balancer. He was able to balance 352-pound Mini Cooper on his head for 33 seconds in 1999. He's the holder of another 32 world records. And he's balanced other things on his head, including 101 bricks and 235 pints of beer. I bet his mom and dad are very proud of him. <laughs> it's amazing. The focus, the dedication. This is going somewhere. Maybe. We'll see. Um, this one's my famous, my, my favorite one. Uh, Joanna Quas. Quas. Anybody know Joanna? Joanna don't play around, man. I don't know what your grandma does. <laughs> But Joanna is living proof that at the age of 92 years old, she's still competing as the world's oldest gymnast. She was born in Germany, took on her first competition at the age of 10, and has been hooked ever since. We should get one of those in our house. That'd be fun just to see, see what could happen there. But when we think about these elements of uncommon feats, what are things that we like to celebrate? Well, often they're from uncommon people. Like a grandma, are you kidding me? That, that's really what would happen? Often they happen in uncommon places. And often they're met with undeniable impact and power. You could probably take that down now. That's creepy. <laughs> Is that Cindy back there? Hey, how you doing? <laughs> and so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at these elements of uncommon feats. And that God actually loves to use, he loves to use unlikely people 
in unlikely places to outwork undeniable power. Undeniable power. And the story of the early church is one of these stories. Uncommon people, uncommon place, undeniable power, the outworking of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, If you've been going to the movie theater lately, you'll know that superheroes are all the rage. It seems like that's been the only kind of movies that have been out for 15 years. I don't really know. The last movie I saw in the theaters was Captain Underpants, and it it was awesome. Um, But often what happens in these these stories is they they make the movies, and then they go back in time like Star Wars, and they start to to tell these origin stories. Origin stories are all the rage right now in movies. Wonder Woman, anybody see Wonder Woman? Fantastic. I couldn't believe how good Wonder Woman was. And what we want to do today, actually, is we're going to zoom in a little bit to the origin stories of the early church. And what we see is that the story of the early church is far more compelling than any of these feats that we just listed. I mean, first we talk about the disciples. The disciples, we read these people and, and sometimes we, we misassociate that these folks, because they're in the Bible, you know, they're really holy and they've got it all together. And if you've read the disciples... And you've zoomed in on that story. I don't know about you, but I actually get a a lot of joy in that. Because what we see throughout the disciples is a bunch of folks who actually are very broken and who often get uh, their foot stuck in their mouth. Peter is probably most atrocious for that. He's the one. I mean, scholars think he he had foot in mouth disease because every time he, he spoke... It was like foot insert in mouth every time. I mean, you've got this group of people who were, were a lot of them were fishermen, blue collar. You got a guy in there who was a tax collector, which is code for terrorist. <laughs> Despised and hated. You've got money hungry people. You've got doubters. You've got warmongers. You've got James and John, the sons of thunder. And, yeah, James, wrap it up. James is now going to show you that tattoo on his back, Sons of Thunder. (laughs) But that wasn't a compliment. It wasn't because of their impact and everything they were able to. I mean, Jesus used that and and changed that. But the first time that that's kind of used is we get these guys and they're they're traveling through town and they're looking for a place to stay. And they go to the Samaritan village where Jews and Samaritans, uh uh-uh, we don't do that. We don't mix. And and they weren't allowed to get a place to stay. And James and John, they turn to Jesus and they say, Lord, shall we call down thunder on these people? I mean, Peter, I mean, Jesus at one point calls him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. He's the same guy that he would later say, you're the rock on which I will build my church. So God redeems and restores. But when you look at these people, I mean, James and John were often, and this never happens in our family, not this James and John, were jockeying for position. You know, I want to be set at the right hand of of the Father when Jesus ascends into into heaven. And this never happens in our family either. But James and John's mom got involved at one part, at one point. This is in the Bible. You guys know this stuff? It's in the Bible. And like sets up this little meeting with like Jesus. Hey, Jesus, let me, James, they're really good boys. If you could just, you know, when, when this thing goes public, when people finally find out who you are and the kingdom is here, can you make sure, just, just give them one on your left and one on your right. Can we make sure that happens? It's like mom going and, and, and talking to my high school basketball coach who wasn't giving me a whole lot of playing time and saying, play my boy. You know, it's like one of those things. <laughs> I appreciate that. I mean. Involved parenting is good parenting. But this was not exactly a super team. 
I mean, these are real people. This is real talking here. I mean, Draymond and Curry weren't like calling these guys in the offseason and saying, hey, guys, come join the squad and we're going to get together and we're going to win three rings in a row. <laughs> I mean, these are people that were not picked. <laughs> and then you think about Jesus. Now, relax for a second. Jesus, the, the sovereignty of him, fully God, we understand that. But we also know in the mystery of our faith, and the creeds confirm this time and time again, that he was also fully human, <laughs> fully God and fully, fully human. And when you look at the fully human part of him, not so awesome. Isaiah 53 says that he had no beauty for us to ascribe to him. I mean, God decides to enact his plan of redemption on humanity by sending us a baby. <laughs> you guys seen a baby? I mean, I know babies are cute and stuff, but Eden and, and Lucy yesterday were playing in the backyard. I wasn't there for this. Lindy told me this, but there, there's all these bubbles all over the place. And apparently there's a bubble machine in the kitchen where you put in flavored bubbles and it comes out and you can eat the bubbles. And so Lucy just thought, right, anything that makes bubbles, you can eat. And so she got the other bubble stuff, which you're not supposed to eat, and she put it all in her mouth, and she turned around to eat it and said, do you want to play? And as she said, that bubbles just came out everywhere. <laughs> what do babies do? What do babies do? They take up your time. They kind of waddle all over the place. They're, they're stinky. I mean, Jesus came as a baby, guys. He came as a baby. And not only that, he wasn't born like in, you know, Newport Beach or San Francisco or something like that. He was born in some backwater town under scandalous circumstances. A town of 200 people to a 13-year-old virgin. This is how Jesus chose to show himself. This is how God chose to show himself in flesh. He was born and just immediately King Herod... They're after him because they've heard of this Messiah, this warrior king, and actually is out to kill him. So every boy born under the age of two would, would be slaughtered. So you know what Jesus and his family, they do? This is all the Bible. This is crazy. They escape to Egypt. They flee the country. They flee as war refugees, as immigrants in a foreign land. His father, who had a respected vocation as a carpenter, is reduced to an immigrant-filled worker. <laughs> this is the family that God chose. Have you ever read Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 5? If you ever want to do a fun study sometimes, do that. It's a pretty common practice in the ancient Near East. Whenever you wanted to announce somebody and describe who this person is, you would tell about their family. And you would make sure that if you're going to speak about the family, that you would leave out crazy Uncle Leo, because we're just not talking about crazy Uncle Leo. And you would also leave out women. You wouldn't talk because women weren't even allowed to give a public testimony. They weren't viewed as somebody who actually mattered in the ancient Near East. And Jesus' genealogy in Matthew 5 is nothing short but scandalous and subversive. <laughs> I mean, for the first part, it mentions five women. Like, who does that? <laughs> who does that? And then you start looking closely and you do a study on some of them that were mentioned. I mean, you've got an adulterer. You've got a murderer. There's incest. There's prostitution. These are some serious knots in Jesus' family tree. <laughs> Insane. And so then Jesus is obviously, he's confirmed by his father. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And there's miracles and there's signs and wonders that confirm who, who he is. 
And he gets to his point now where he starts picking his team. And remember those castaway dudes. Jesus says to them, come and follow me. <laughs> this would have been a common practice by rab- rabbis in this age. The Jewish boys would, would go through their education. And they would get to a certain point where either they're kind of on the bubble. Like you're either going to get picked in the first round of the draft or you're going back home to Indiana to work the farm because nobody actually wants to pick you. And so these guys that Jesus picks, they they didn't make it. They didn't make the cut. (laughs) Jewish rabbis would walk through town. They would know people and they would say, come and follow me. Because what that means is actually I believe that you have what it takes to be just like me. I believe that you can be just like me. And a rabbi was known not just for his wisdom and insight, but primarily by the quality of the students that he raised. So a rabbi would walk through town and, and want to pick the best of the best and probably have scouts in the different learning environments. And Jesus comes to these guys, these blue-collar castaways, margins of society, tax collectors. <laughs> I mean, the least of the least, Jesus comes to them, and what does he say? I believe you can be just like me. And you know what? That's good news for us. That's good news for us. And I think somebody needs to hear that today, that God uses everyday, ordinary, broken people to outwork the power of his kingdom. Maybe you're here this morning and you had no idea, like, this is a different service and somebody handed you a hanky to wave around. You're like, I guess this is what this church does. (laughs) All right, let's just go. 35 and 40, I have no idea, but the doors were open. And if that's the case, we love that you're here. We love that you're here. And the truth that you need to hear is God uses everyday, ordinary, broken people to outwork his kingdom. Like we're, we're celebrating this couple today. Absolutely. Works and years, faithful in ministry. Absolutely. But God wants to use you as well. Because the message of Christianity was never meant to be a sit back and spectate sort of outworking of his kingdom. You guys know that. That's been fueled and fostered here from day one. You are a minister with a ministry. We're all sent ones with the power of the Holy Spirit to do what he calls us and commissions us to do. But you may be thinking, man, but you don't know my brokenness. You don't understand the things I've done, the thoughts that I've had, the, the choices that I've made, the regret and the shame that I, that I live in, the guilt that I feel. Guilt and shame are crazy things. Guilt says I've done something wrong. Shame says I am something wrong. And maybe you sit back and you think, God uses them, obviously. It's for people who stand on platforms. But God would never use me because I've, I've messed up. I'm broken. I've, I've, missed, I've missed the mark. And man, if you look at the story of the early church and throughout the Old Testament, by the way, I mean, Psalms 22, the book of worship, who was that written by? David, an adulterous murderer who God said, what did he say? How's that one go? Man after his own heart. God uses every ordinary day broken people to outwork his kingdom. And you need to know that. And you need to hear that. And you need to walk in that and not be crippled by guilt and shame. But to move out for what God has you to do. There's a funny thing that happens in my house. Maybe this happens in your house too. Uh, My favorite day of the month happens on the second and the fourth Friday. It's the day that the the cleaners come to our house. (laughs) And (laughs) life is full right now. Lindy works full time and... 
We're adjusting to madness and, and the pace of life in Los Angeles. And rather than clean the house all day on our Saturdays off, we just, you know, we're going to have somebody come in. And, and it's great. They do that. And, you know, it's fantastic. It's a, it's a blessing for sure. Um, but there's something that happens before the Friday that they come and clean our house. There's the pre-cleaning. <laughs> Some of you guys already know what I'm talking about. You're like, yeah. Okay. What's he going to say? I mean, there's the Thursday night dash of pick up all the toys and clean the dishes and make sure that there's no dirty laundry all over the floor and make sure that the house is ready and clean so that it can be cleaned. Like, that's just, that's ridiculous. Who does that? I do that all the time. Just a couple of Fridays ago, we were in Lucy's room and the diaper thing was totally full to overflowing. And I was like, man, no, we can't have the cleaner do that. Let's make sure we get that and, and take care of that. And Lindy kind of looked at me like, what are, you, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm cleaning. You know the cleaners are coming this afternoon. I said, I know, that's why I'm cleaning. <laughs> I'm very much a, everything in its place kind of a place sort of dude where I want everything to be nice and, nice and clean and tidy. Because... I don't want somebody to see my mess. <laughs> like, it's cool for them to clean the shower, do that kind of stuff. But, man, when they come in, I want to make sure that we look like we're at least civilized. So, <laughs> let's clean up a little bit up in here. <laughs> and here's the truth. You know where we're going. Is we do that with our faith all the time. <laughs> we do that in our approach to God all the time. God wouldn't want to use me. Like, I can't come in here because I got stuff, man. Like, and if people knew, like, I wouldn't even be allowed to be in here. So let me clean up a little bit first. Let me do a little bit of sin management. Make sure I got that all under control. And then when I feel like I'm clean and I'm good, then I can come into the family. Man, God loves you, accepts you long before you ever had thought of the possibility of cleaning yourself. And by the way... You can't clean yourself. It doesn't work. That's what Jesus came to do. That whole sin management thing. Many of us were on that cycle. Sin, repent, try again. Sin, repent, try. And we feel like we're hamsters on a wheel. And we're tired. And we're thinking there must be another way. And you know what? There is another way. Jesus comes and says, are you tired? You look tired. Are you burnt out on religion? Why don't you come to me? I'll give you a rest that is real rest. Take my yoke upon me. Come and learn from me. The same thing he said to the disciples. Come and learn from me because I believe you can be just like me. And that power to be just like me, it's not in yourselves. Because if it was, you already would have accomplished that. And the fact that we can't is actually the point. Because if we could, then what in the world would we need a Savior for? But often we feel like i got to hide this stuff. People can't really know, like my past. And, and you know, it's, it's just, how you doing, brother? I'm highly favored and blessed. I love that line. I love to use that every once in a while. <laughs> but one of the greatest gifts of a family, and we experience this in our one of the greatest gifts of a family is a place where you can be vulnerable, where you can be known. A place where you can come home and be comfortable in even all your mess. I'm not going to lie, like skinny jeans... Like, these might look all right, but I can't wait for this trend to go out of fashion, man. Like, 
as soon as the, like, I'm going to wear my sweatpants all day long trend comes in, like, I'm jumping on that all day long. <laughs> when I get home to my parents' house, like, I, I ain't sitting in my, I ain't sitting in my skinny jeans. I put on my basketball shorts and my, my baggy Warriors t-shirt. And I'm like, man, this is, we're home. <laughs> That's the family of God, man. The family of God is a place where you can be home. The place where you can be known and loved. Now, does that mean that we go on sinning all the more because grace abounds? There's a little thing called sanctification in Galatians where we talk about staying in step with the Spirit. But notice it doesn't say it's all on you. Pick yourself up. Try harder and harder. I mean, did you know confession? You know what confession is for? It's so funny. We think confession is for God. God knows everything, right? So if he knows everything, he knows you're going to go home today and pound those two double-doubles from in and out. Like, he just knows it. <laughs> and we think, like, God doesn't know our stuff. Because sometimes we have this picture of God with this cosmic fly swatter in the sky and just waiting for us to mess up and, sm and smash us. Smite us, almighty smiter. <laughs> and so we approach God sometimes with this, hey, God, um, you, you, you know, I, I, I did it again. You know, I, I did that thing again. I watched that thing. I committed that sin again. And we sometimes think God is like, what? You did what? Oh, we're going to have to send Jesus just to be crucified all over again just for your sin. <laughs> Jesus died for that stuff. It's dead. The primary role of the enemy, the accuser, is to tell us not just that we should have guilt, but to tell us that we should have shame. Because somehow the magnitude of our sin far outpaces the magnitude of God's love and sacrifice, which is heresy <laughs> and a form of idolatry. God sent his son, Jesus, to die the death that we deserve to die so that we could live the life that we could have never lived on our own. And the Christian faith, the Christian walk, is one of daily walking into that reality. Amen. Ephesians is my favorite book of the Bible. Ephesians 1 through 3, it's all Paul just reminding us of who we are. Yeah. You are a royal a priesthood. You are a chosen people. You are sons and daughters. You have been adopted by the Most High speaking life into our identity. And then he makes the turn in Ephesians 4 and he says, so therefore, live a calling worthy to the life, live, live a life worthy to the calling you've received. Which is basically to say, be who you already are. We don't start from this place of, if I could just clean up and if I could just get my stuff together enough, then I can become a son and daughter. Then I can walk into faith and victory. That's not where it starts. What is Grace. Grace is God's movement towards us before we could ever move towards him. Grace is calling us sons and daughters Amen. without us knowing that we can't actually contribute towards that. It's not in us. Romans 12, right? Offering ourselves as a, as a living sacrifice because what God has done, my response is naturally worship. And we don't always get it right. But the enemy wants to tell us when we don't get it right, not just guilt, but shame, and you'll never get it right. And God wants nothing to do with you, which is so much a lie. You need to hear that today. 
God uses unlikely people to outwork His gospel and to outwork His kingdom. He also does things in unlikely places. (laughs) Jesus, it's just crazy. The Bible is crazy. It comes alive when you read it, when you understand this stuff. He chose to send Jesus, God in flesh, as a baby in first century Palestine. You know what was going on then? Roman occupation, the Roman Empire, the greatest military force that the world had ever known. This military force that stretched all the way from what we know as modern-day India all the way up to England. And the Romans, they were beginning to deify their emperors at this point. Uh, Augustus, Caesar Augustus in rule. He made up the story that his father, Julius, some of you guys are thinking, am I in Western Civ 1 right now? What is going on? Um, he made up the story about Julius and said, you know, Julius, my dad, he, yeah, he was a god. And guess what that makes me? Ta-da! Son of God. It was a term that Augustus regularly used for himself. He established temples and priesthoods in his own name. Every time that the Roman Empire would conquer another town, another village, they would construct this monument, the structure that the town was forced to worship at. And they would declare as they conquered the people, Evangelogo or Ulangarion, depending on how you pronounce that in Greek. Ulangarion, Caesar has come. And that term Ulangarion, you know what it actually means? It means good news. It's the same word that we surmise from the gospel, from the, from the Bible, gospel. <laughs> Caesar would conquer a town and say, gospel, good news, Caesar has conquered. Good news, Caesar has set you free. The Son of God has come and set you free, is what they would say. If you wanted to get a message out in, in the ancient Far East, you couldn't tweet, you couldn't, send a, couldn't do a text message. So the best way that you could communicate something that you want your whole empire to, to hear and to understand would be through your currency. Because currency travels. So they began to inscript sort of this propagandic language on their currency. There would be things on it that would say, Salvation is found in no other save Augustus. There is no other name given to men which can be saved. Does that sound familiar? Caesar is Lord. This is the environment that Jesus came to rescue and save the lost. Do you get maybe while now they hated him a little bit? What time am I supposed to be done anyway? Okay. (laughs) There's an inscription that was found on an old ruin in a government building in Asia Minor. It's dated from 6 B.C., which scholars sometimes, Jesus was born somewhere between 4 and 6 B.C. So right around the time Jesus was born, this inscription was written on this government building. It says this, The most divine Caesar, we, could, we should consider him equal to the beginning of all things. For everything was falling into disorder and disillusion. And he restored it once and gave the whole world a new life. Caesar, the common good fortune of all, the beginning of life and vitality, has brought our life to perfection in giving to us himself, Caesar Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as Savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. And whereas, having become God manifest, (laughs) this is real talk, you guys, uh, Caesar was fulfilled and all hopes of earlier times restored. The birthday of the God Augustus has been for the whole world the beginning Good news, Ulangarion, concerning him. And you thought some of our modern-day politicians had issues with pride. <laughs> Should we just leave that? 
Yeah, okay. <laughs> you see how radical this is? <laughs> oh, man, this is subversive stuff. This is crazy. You can't write this. I loved growing up in children's church. You know, one of my favorite things about children's church, I had two favorite things. Number one, uh, puppet shows. Bring puppet shows back. Like, we don't do that enough, man. Like, bring them back. Puppet shows are amazing. I love that. And the other thing that I loved was the flannel, flannel graph. You know, the flannel, you put the thing up there, and here's the story and everything, and everything else, and David slay Goliath and all that stuff. And that's great, and it's how we understand it. But, man, this is not like puppet show flannel graph faith here. Like, this is a real deal. Jesus came in in one of the most contested times of civilization to say, I am salvation. To say, Caesar is not Lord. I am Lord. And there's no other name that we could save yet the name of Jesus. And we see this collision of unlikely people in unlikely places. And we see undeniable power and impact. See, because the truth is, is God took all of these elements and in his good will, in his good pleasure, he said, this is the time, this is the place, these are my people. We sang that song. I love that that was the theme. This is the time, this is the place. Well, I will pour out my spirit and I will begin a revolution of the kingdom, a movement of his people that the gates of hell, try as they might, shall not prevail against. In the Roman Empire, by AD 30, 8300, 300 years prior to that, nothing but persecution of Christians. And we read those stories and Nero and just what, what that was like. By AD 300, do you know what the Roman Empire decided to do? <laughs> Adopt Christianity as its state religion. Because persecute as we might and try to squash these people and this weird mystic movement of Judaism. They didn't even quite even understand what it, what it was. There was an undeniable force and power that they could not prevail against. It was made the official religion of Rome. And today, there's over 2 billion Christians worldwide. Today, in towns where there are structures put up to say that Caesar is Lord, are now churches where Jesus is declared as Lord. Caesar is a name that's long and gone. You know what we think about when we hear the word Caesar? At least I know what I think about. Pizza, pizza. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And what does it say? Little Caesar? The commercial with that little dude with the big nose and the toga with his $5 pizzas. Caesar has been reduced to a cheap imitation pizza. <laughs> And who is Jesus? He's the Lord of Lords. He's a wonderful counselor. He's the everlasting Father. He's the mighty God. He's the King of Kings. He's our hope. He's our peace. He's our restorer. He's our redeemer. And who are we in Christ? Oh, we're more than conquerors. We're overcomers. He doesn't call us slaves. He calls us friends. He doesn't call us sort of the squad that sits in the back. No, we're co-heirs with him. All the riches in Christ Jesus are with us. <laughs> he chooses to use us. 
undeniable power, undeniable impact. And the Roman government couldn't understand it. Like we tried to squash these people. There was this giant fire. Who's taking Western Civ right now? You're getting like free tutoring if you are. (laughs) AD 64, the fire that nearly destroyed almost all of the Roman, not the Roman Empire, but particular parts of Rome. And they didn't know what to do, so Nero, many think actually he set the fire, but he started to blame the Christians so that people would get upset and begin to attack and persecute, which it didn't work. (laughs) The movement began to just grow and grow. And the movement was absolutely revolutionary. Read Acts 2, the story of the early church, man. You've got people in there that had no business being together. You had slave with free. You had Jew and Gentile. We can't quite understand how explosive that language is. (laughs) Men and women in the same room, in the same environment. People that had no other idea, no other right to be together are united as one declaring who Jesus is. And the Roman government was like, what is going on? This is insane. How could this be? And I love it. If you're a fan of apologetics, there's all kinds of books and things that you could read. And I nerd out on that sometime. But um, in AD 60, there was um, a guy who was the tutor to the Roman Empire, Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius. Um, The guy, his name was Dionoctes. You don't know if that's right, so I'll just pretend like it is anyway. Um, (laughs) And Marcus Aurelius... In AD 60, this movement isn't going away. Like, what's happening? What's happening here? And this whole, like, Jesus is Messiah and Lord, like, they were expecting, which is why they crucified him, that it would be this great military conquest. And the zealots would come out and the Maccabee revolution, and they would come and overtake the throne of Caesar with force. And that wasn't happening, but it was still growing. It was like, how could this possibly be? So he sends Diagnostus to write um, basically a report about what's happening with, with Christians. And it's one of, it is actually, I, I think it is, the first Christian apologetic that was ever written. And it was written by a tutor commissioned by Marcus Aurelius. And so he comes back and he writes this, this letter and it's called The Manner of Christians, which if you want to read it sometime, it's really fascinating. It talks about their different sort of worship things and what they do. And this is the report that comes back to Marcus Aurelius in AD 60. Like, what are these guys doing? Are they planning? Are they plotting? He says, for Christians are distinguished from all other men, neither by country nor by language, nor by the customs which they observe. Basically, we can't figure them out. They're not like just just one nation sect of people. Like they're really diverse and they bring all these different customs together. Like that just didn't happen in that world in that time and age. So they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as foreigners. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and at the same time surpass the laws by their lives. (laughs) They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death, yet somehow restored to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in lack of things, yet they abound in all. (laughs) They are dishonored, and yet in their very nature, this dishonor brings them to be glorified. They are evil spoken of, and yet are justified. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. 
When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Christians likewise love those who hate them. <laughs> that was the report. I mean, we can go off on a whole tangent. If, if there was a report of the manner of Christians today, what might come out? But God uses his people. <laughs> unlikely people in an unlikely place to do unlikely things, unlikely power and impact. So what are we celebrating today? <laughs> well, we're celebrating that God in his good pleasure and will said, this is the time. This is the place. These are my people where I am choosing to do an outpouring of my spirit in the Bay Area that will touch lives of thousands of thousands of people. There's a little church planter language that's often talked about the Bay Area and San Francisco. There's a term, it's called the, the church planter's graveyard because <laughs> it's a difficult place to plant a church. You need to know, somebody thought that was hilarious. <laughs> I'm with you. You need to know, man, this is an uncommon place. These are uncommon people. And we've experienced the uncommon and undeniable impact of Jesus through this community, through the service, through the sacrifice here. My mom, a good all Assemblies of God girl from Pawnee, Oklahoma, born in 1954. My dad, a city slicker turned hippie. <laughs> Once lost, radically changed overnight into a here I am, send me, follower of Jesus. Uncommon. I love mama's recounting, just asked him a little bit last night. They met in 1977. In Rhema, because of course, when your life gets turned around upside down, what do you want to do but serve the king? What else can I do? Where is the school? Train me and send me out. Train me and send me out. They were in the same sort of apartment building. My mom was, you were upstairs? Was upstairs and my dad was downstairs. And, and I remember somebody coming to my mom. My mom was quite concerned about who is this guy Mark with the long hair, the hippie first. Who let him in here? How did that happen? <laughs> He doesn't have a car. There's no furniture. Like, what, what is going on here? And my mom did what she still does to this day. Won his heart through food. <laughs> Began cooking. You smell the food. What's going on? Began feeding this guy here. And the table turned to friendship, to romance. I don't want to know all that part of it, but I'm sure that it did. <laughs> So I've been told that's how that works. And these uncommon people from completely different sides of the tracks, God said, these are my people. And I have a plan for them, which they had no idea about. I remember my mom talking about having a burden for the nations and praying to, to reach the nations. And the first time coming to visit the Bay Area thinking the nations are here. <laughs> the nations are here. My dad being invited to speak at this congregation, Pastor Nancy was there that had just started meeting in about 1977 or so, something like that. And my dad being able to speak and, and coming back six months later, and this congregation that had, by faith, rented this building, rent, not this building, but rented a building, rented a PA, rented a piano, 100 chairs with not 100 people to put them in, 
nobody to play the piano, nobody to speak over the PA system, but stepped out in faith. And a word was, was given in a prayer meeting about how did that one go? The one who's going to hold the, the, the candlestick is even among you now, even in our midst now. And then how shortly after that, when they showed up in the doors, four days after that word was given, these guys show up on the Sunday service and the rest is not history because history means it's done. The rest is legacy. <laughs> yeah. Thousands finding healing and freedom. Marriages restored. Hope realized. The, beating that, the building that we meet in right now, nothing short but a miracle. And the older I get, the more aware I become in 17 years of sort of ministry, the cost of ministry. If you're in any form of leadership, two of the gifts of leadership is, is pain. <laughs> That's not a joke. <laughs> And, and often leadership can be very lonely. But what I saw from my parents is even though there was a cost and even though there was sacrifice, that that cost was never at the expense of our family. That cost was never at the expense of raising me and my brother. That what was modeled to us was faithfulness, service, humility. What was modeled to us was a posture of abundance of God has given us so much the outpouring of our lives is to give it away to others. And even though there was sacrifice and there was pain, and when you're in a pastor's home, you have a front row view to some of, some of that stuff, it was never at the expense of my brother and I. Billy Graham once said this as we're coming into land. The greatest legacy one can pass on to one's children and grandchildren is not money or other material things accumulated in one's life but rather a legacy of character and faith. Amen. Philippians 3.12 I press on to possess the perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race, to receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. So today... We celebrate your ministry. We celebrate your sacrifice. We celebrate your dedication, even when met with overwhelming odds. odds. And we celebrate your faith and your courage to lead, despite not even knowing the outcome. And I celebrate you as my parents, your love and your care for us. We love you. We honor you. Amen.